I no longer believe that you can't ask for what you want. And we were taught about asking for what you want in your career. You start with small asks and then you sort of build your way up to the bigger things. And since doing that course, I've had the courage to ask for things I probably would never have had the courage to ask for before. The worst that anyone can say is no. G'day and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Dancing and law aren't usually things that go hand in hand, but my guest, Jesse Portis, is far from usual. The former cheerleader has studied at the University of Newcastle, the Sydney Dance Company, and the Broadway Dance Centre in New York. She's won a slew of awards for her work in the legal profession, and almost two years ago started her own legal training business called The Learned Crew. It's been a busy decade for the self-described lawtrepreneur. Jesse, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, so let's, uh, let's start with uh, your interest in dance because it is an area that I know nothing about but uh, am always fascinated by. What got you into dance originally? I actually started doing physical culture, which for anyone who grew up in the 90s, that fizzy might be a common term that, that people have heard. And it's kind of like a combination of um, dancing, aerobics and gymnastics sort of thing and you and you compete. There's a lot of fake tan and buffy hair, which again indicates the 90s background. Um, but I got into that at about from the age five and I competed until I was in my last year of high school. Um, but I absolutely loved um, dancing and hip hop and my uncle actually taught me the moonwalk and the robot when I was about 10 and from then I was obsessed. <laughs> That's great. So uh, how, how serious were you uh, do, Were you taking your dancing at that stage? How many hours a week were you doing when you were uh, a teenager? Uh, at one point I was doing, I was doing physical culture, uh, gymnastics, jazz dancing, and then of course on the weekends just doing my own hip-hop dancing. So quite a few number of hours a week and uh, just absolutely loved it, just loved learning. Um, I'd never got into ballet though. That's one thing I didn't do. I, I liked the more upbeat upbeat dancing styles. And did you enjoy it more from uh, as a perf uh, performance or was it uh, about the uh, the physical nature of it? Did you enjoy the training more or uh, being on stage? I think both. I've always loved being on stage and performing. I felt very natural on the stage and of course with competitions or with uh, with jazz performances, um, I would absolutely love getting into costume and, and being in front of an audience. I think, but I loved it both. I, I've always loved physical exercise and dancing is one of those things for me that was exercise, but also like an active meditation because <laughs> you never, you don't have to think about anything else but the steps. And you talked about it before in terms of uh, acquiring a skill. Uh, the way you think about a lot of the activities in your life seems to be around this uh, uh, lifelong learning skill acquisition philosophy. D does that come from your parents being teachers? 
I think so, yes. I come from a family of teachers, uh, my grandparents, my uncles and aunties, and uh, and my mum is as well. Um, and I think I've always loved learning. I loved school. Uh, I was a bit of a nerd at school. Uh, loved university. And um, yeah, I feel like I'm really my happiest when I'm when I'm learning. What are you learning at the moment? What are the uh, skills you're focusing on now? <laughs> I'm learning a lot about how to run a business at the moment and about online learning. So I actually recently uh, studied at Harvard. I did one of those online Harvard courses and I saw that you've actually studied at Harvard. That's an absolute dream of mine is to go to Harvard Law School. <laughs> I think that's every every lawyer's dream. Um, but instead, I, I did one of those online Harvard courses in, in teaching and learning. And, um, and that's been really helpful for me to learn how to teach others, which has been really helpful with my business. And I'm now applying that and uh, running a lot of online courses so I'm able to sort of practice what I preach and put those things into practice, I guess. And you got interested in uh, the teaching of law while you were a law student yourself at the uh, University of Newcastle. What, what do you think uh, law students often get wrong about uh, how they they go about their studies? Yeah, I guess, well, university is so different to school. Uh, it's very independent learning. And, you know, over a five-year law degree, and you studied law yourself, you know how, how tough it is and how different it is from school. I think that you spend a lot of time figuring out how to study it properly and there's a lot of readings and there's a lot of information thrown at you and then you're sort of, you have to deal with an open book exam at the end or, or a big exam and no one really teaches you how to learn or how to study and when I was at law school, I I started doing uh, past classes, which is something that quite a a few um, universities offer, which is when a sort of a, a senior student will teach or tutor the uh, students in younger years um, one of the subjects and give study tips and things like that. And I did that in my fourth and fifth year of uni and I absolutely loved it. And I ended up actually learning a lot from teaching others. And so, so I was going through, you know, I think I, I did evidence law and property law. Those were the two subjects I taught uh, in past class and um, or past stands for peer assisted student study or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I was telling them, oh, you know, you should come up with like a model answer for your exams, you know, so come up with, uh, you know, the head, the main headings that you have to answer to answer whether this evidence would be admissible in court um, and, you know, write all these things and get them all ready before you get into the exam and sort of have a perfectly written essay for, before you go into the open book exam. And then I stopped and listened to myself for a second and went, hey, that's a really good idea. I should do that myself. And um, and I guess that's when I fell in love both with teaching because you always learn more when you're teaching, I feel. And uh, and secondly, I think it sort of started my little journey of, um, of, of TLC or the learned crew and what I ended up doing. When I finished uni, I really missed that aspect um, and I was working uh, as a judge's associate at the time and I started a blog and the blog was like a little cathartic exercise for me to share all the tips and tricks for studying that I had accumulated over the five years and it was basically a way of me to share those things that I would have loved to have known when I was in first year uni but it took me sort of four or five years to to get and I put it all on a 
on a blog. I never advertised it. And then I was looking at the stats of people who had, who had gone onto my page and I had something like 75,000 hits and I was thinking, wow, okay, this is something that's needed. Mm. I think students want a little bit of help with how to study effectively. So what sorts of uh, practical advice do you give to people through the, through the blog? What have been some of the uh, posts that have had the, the, most, the, most, the most engagement? Is it about uh, time management? Is it about uh, how people read effectively? Because there are just, as you say, mountains of paper to be gotten through as a law student. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's a mix. So the study blogs that I wrote, and they're now all, I, I transferred my old blog post to my new website when I started TLC a few years ago. But um, I find that a lot of them are about um, how to write model answers. So when I said before, one of my biggest tips for studying law is to come up with sort of a perfectly written essay where it could cover a whole range of different scenarios for when you get into the exam room and it's a problem-based question so you don't know the facts but at least if you've got the law and everything written down and structured beautifully you can then spend your reading time thinking about the facts of the problem and actually using your time wisely thinking about the application of the law rather than how to write it the answer and so um, I find that those blog posts are really popular um, other ones are about sort of learning styles, like what, how do you study effectively to suit you um, and your schedule? As you mentioned, time management, you know, some students will be working part time or some students are mature age students with, with kids. So they have to work around their schedules. Um, but then I also find some of my blogs are focused on careers of, of other lawyers. So I love speaking to other lawyers that I know in the profession and hearing about their stories and I find that students love reading about people and how they got to where they got to. Um, there's a lot of pressure I guess on law students to find jobs and to find and to be successful in their career and I feel like it's nice when they hear that okay someone you know didn't get a summer clerkship at this firm but they ended up working in their dream job overseas or, or, or whatever it might be. Yes, it's an amazingly uh, diverse platform. It's, uh, I remember at one stage, I don't know if it's still true in Australia, we had about as many people studying law as we had lawyers. Uh, so it was pretty obvious that all the law students weren't going to end up going into law. Uh, but having a grounding in law seems pretty useful for public service, for a whole range of uh, corporate jobs. Uh, indeed, the uh, the guy who taught me to study law, Ben Austin, uh, was uh, was my uh, one of my flatmates, and uh, he's now. Uh, off in the world of, uh, of investment banking, I'm off in politics, but uh, it was him who taught me that for an open book exam you need to produce a summary and then a summary of the summary and finally a summary of the summary of the summary, which is about two pages that, uh, that shows you uh, your way around the subject and then at that stage you feel as though you've, you've really, you know, you know where everything is in your, uh, your, your summary and you can dive into the exam. Absolutely. But I think um, it's interesting about the legal career options that you, that you spoke about and, and the sort of oversupply of law graduates, which, which sometimes gets a bit of airplay um, in the media. But it's an interesting time, I think, in the legal profession. I think it's one of the best times in the legal profession because things have really changed and there are so many other roles that you can do with a law degree. And you touched on some of them just then. And, but there's also the rise in legal tech and 
um, new law, which are sort of not your traditional law firms, but offer different legal-based services or products. And so um, I think it's really important that um, us in the legal profession, that we share those different options with law students who may not necessarily know all of the options because uh, the, the profession's moving quite quickly now um, and, and things are changing. And I think, um, yeah, I think we, we owe it to the students that are studying um, to let them know that there's so many things that they can do with their, with their graduate, uh, with, with their degree. Jesse, I was going to ask you, to what extent do you think your desire to uh, found an organisation that improved the way in which students learn had to do with coming to law without a, a traditional legal background? You know, you didn't have uh, grandparents who were judges and parents who were uh, uh, partners in law firms. Instead, you were, uh, as you've described it, a, something of a clean skin coming into law. Do you think that that outsider's perspective made you more open to the challenges that people face in, in learning law effectively? Yeah, that's. A, I've never thought of it that way, actually, but um, I guess it does, maybe because I can empathise with a lot of um, first-generation lawyers, for want of a better term, um, who are going through law school and don't have any background. And you do have to learn it all as you go. And I'm still learning, like, by no means do I know everything. Um, and uh, But I think having all the opportunities, and I'm so lucky to have had the opportunities I've had in the legal profession, and... I think because I love to say yes to opportunities and I love learning um, that I've done that. But I also like to share what I've learned with others um, so that it can can help them. So maybe it is that that aspect that I didn't really have the background, but I'm figuring it out. And so I'm sort of sharing what I've learned, learned with the next generation. And that is where TLC began. It's, um, it is a, a legal training business designed to prepare the next generation of lawyers for the real world, especially when it's changing so much. And because I'm in it, I'm thinking, well, what would I want to know if I was a student or a young lawyer, in fact? What do you, what do you say to people who think about starting another project but uh, are put off by the fact that they, uh, they've only got time in their life for, uh, for one main job? For others wanting to do something like this, I think absolutely go for it. I've found a lot of happiness in pursuing this project and um, I love what I do and I bounce out of bed and it's really like it's exciting to do to do my work and um, I feel if someone else has, has that sort of passion or wants to do things, um, even if they want to start it as something they do on the weekends like for a couple of hours or something and see if they like it and see I'm not sure if it's something that's a charitable thing or something they want to eventually make money from um, that really depends but I think go for it. Yes it always seems surprising to me that when we're telling people how to invest their superannuation we say well you should have a diversified portfolio, you should have some safe investments and some risky investments and the high risk, high return things will uh, can be counteracted by the uh, stability of the safe investments. And yet in a career sense we tell people well you've either got to have uh, a solid safe job or else you've got to ditch that and go out and be an entrepreneur. Uh, and it seems that you've in some sense found the best of both, both worlds there. I wanted to ask you to, uh, about the uh, the legal profession because it does get a, a reputation, uh, you know, going back to LA law and the, and the like, uh, of being a uh, cutthroat profession. 
but then the, the culture of pro bono work is pretty strong within law. Uh, and you've spoken about the, uh, in the sense of community between lawyers and, uh, and that, uh, that attitude that we're all in this together. Uh, how do you see that, those, those two cultures, the sort of aggressive um, uh, courtroom culture coinciding with the, the more collegial and, and generous culture of the law profession? And, and how do we encourage more generosity among lawyers? Mm. I've been really overwhelmed, actually, by the generosity of the legal profession, um, particularly in supporting me, but even, you know, during the current crisis, um, a lot of um, law firms and, and lawyers who are quite influential, particularly on LinkedIn, are sharing so much knowledge with the next generation um, and there's podcasts, there's um, there's resources, there's virtual internships, there's all these things that are going on that give me a lot of hope. I think actually the profession's absolutely fantastic and I've been lucky to um, to have experienced the collegiate version and I've got a lot of um, good friends across the country in various different legal positions that have the same sort of passions as I do, which is really nice. Um, I guess you can't escape the cutthroat nature of disputes, I think, because that's, yeah, that, that's what happens. People go to court sometimes and have those disputes. But I think when all is said and done and you get out of the courtroom or you get out of that um, that deal or whatever it is that you're working on, um, lawyers, in my experience, I've had a very collegiate and collaborative um, experience with lawyers wanting to help each other and wanting to do um, pro bono work. Uh, when I was working at uh, one of the big firms in the start of my career, I spent six months um, at a community legal centre, um, which is an amazing opportunity for me to do a rotation. That was a full six-month rotation of my graduate program, um, helping refugees and asylum seekers, which was an, a most amazing experience. So, um, yeah, I've had, I've had a really positive experience in the legal profession. I think it gets a bad rap for no reason. I'm not sure... I'm not sure why. Um, I think it is Hollywood, maybe Suits or <laughs> some of those shows that sort of show the real cutthroat nature. Um, but I think at the end of the day, a lot of lawyers become lawyers to help people. And, um, yeah, what I've, what I've seen in the people that I surround myself with um, definitely believe that too. What do we need to do to get more women in the senior ranks of the legal profession? Oh, that's a good question. Um, look, I think, I mean, graduate, uh, I think female graduates are um, now outstripping men, I think, um, in numbers. So that's really good. I think that's been true for quite a while, but you don't see it in the in the partner statistics. You don't see it on the bench. Uh, you don't see it in the senior council. Uh, you know, it's, it's taking a long time for that pipeline to flow through. Yeah, you don't. I think in the in-house world where I've been for the last five years, I think... Um, I think female general counsels are, are getting up there. I don't have the, the statistics in front of me. Um, but, yeah, look, I think it's always that age-old question of the work-life balance, um, the children aspect. It's it's tough, and I'm not sure what the answer is. I wish I had the answer. Um, but, you know, hopefully maybe even this current crisis with the flexibility of working arrangements that, mm, that mm. things like this might change the mindset about what traditional work hours would be um, because it, it is something like when you're losing such an incredible part of the workforce for a couple of years and then and they're not able to, to show that leadership um, position because of breaks they might have had, it's a real shame. And, um, again, I don't have the statistics and I'm sure I'm generalising, but um, there are the researchers that show 
um, that when there's females on, on senior management um, in companies, in firms and that sort of thing, um, and you've got that diversity of thought, that it does lead to better economic decisions. So um, I think we've got to do something about it. I wish I had the answer, Andrew. I'm not sure. <laughs> what do you think? Well, one of my mates as a partner at a big Sydney firm says that uh, he and some of the other male partners have uh, been focused on what they call making a noisy exit, uh, by which he means if you've got to go and pick up the kids in the middle of the afternoon, um, you don't do the, uh, the, the 1980s thing of putting your jacket on the back of your chair and then slinking out of the office and, and leaving the impression that you've, uh, you've just gone to the bathroom. Uh, instead, you, uh, you say very loudly, all right, I'm off to pick up the kids now. Uh, I'm available on the, on the phone if you need me. Uh, and in doing that, you're creating just a little bit more space for people who are more junior in the firm to, uh, to, to, to operate flexibly. I love that. And in the company I'm working for at the moment, that's also the culture. It's absolutely amazing. I've always been able to work from home. Um, you know, if you need a, to review a big contract and you need a few hours by yourself to do that, um, that's always open. Uh, and of course, if you've got um, children, pick up duties, um, you know, parents to care, to take care of, uh, whatever it might be, it's very flexible. And that is so promising. I think if more organisations can and firms can do that, that's absolutely brilliant. Now, when I was uh, working as a, a lawyer in the mid-1990s for Minter Ellison and Clifford Chance, one of the big things that uh, young lawyers would do was discovery. Uh, these days, a lot of discovery uh, it doesn't involve junior lawyers uh, sifting through documents, but is, is done by artificial intelligence. Uh, what other sorts of changes do you think we're going to see in the, in the legal profession in coming decades? What are the interesting developments that, that you're excited by as to, as to how the profession will change? Yeah, I think, I mean, AI is going to be a big thing um, and we hear it all the time, um, AI, legal tech, innovation, it's, um, it's quite overwhelming actually because there's a lot of tools that are coming out, a lot of services that are coming out that, that are spruiking that, you know, it's legal tech or it's AI and um, it's, it, it can be overwhelming but I'm very excited about it because, you know, I don't think junior lawyers want to particularly be doing discovery, um, although it is a good way to learn. Um, but I think it's going to lead to uh, some opportunities, I think, for lawyers to work on more higher value stuff. So if, if some piece of AI or tech can, can do some of the, the grunt work, I guess, um, you know, going through mountains of documents, looking for the needle in the haystack, or whether it's reviewing precedents um, of, of case decisions in terms of finding out what the position might be, but then as lawyers, as judges, as um, professionals were able to use what that technology is, has submitted to us but then be able to use our higher order thinking, our empathy, our commercial acumen and understanding of the client or whatever it might be that we're working on, we can then use our human skills even more um, to supplement what, what the tech is doing. Um, I think it's, it's, it will make lawyers' jobs easier, which will be good. And hopefully that'll lead to some more flexible working arrangements, just like what we were talking about just before. Um, but I, I'm pretty excited. I'm, I love change. And, um, you know, even my practice as a lawyer, it's changed dramatically, even just in the last two or three years, um, even just using uh, more uh, tools, workflow tools, automated contracts, that sort of thing um, is really exciting. And I'm really interested in what the future will bring. 
Yes, I'm particularly excited by the prospect that uh, as a result of the awful events of the pandemic this year, uh, we might move much more rapidly towards uh, teleworking uh, than we would have otherwise. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, we might see uh, uh, a scaling back of this uh, movement towards open plan offices, uh, which seem to be supported by approximately zero research. Uh, all the research that I've read seems to suggest that open plan offices are not only a haven for bugs, but a haven for distraction, and uh, uh, that people, in fact, work much better when they've got a little bit of silence. And you, you look at some of these open plan offices in, uh, in big uh, CB, CBD locations and, and everyone's wearing noise cancelling headphones. So any sort of collaboration you thought would organically flow out of open plan uh, doesn't, doesn't seem to be there. Um, telework, teleworking or, uh, or having some, some greater level of privacy seems to be a better way of encouraging people to engage in, in really deep work of the kind that I think is, is going to be satisfying. Mm, I think, yeah, the, the balance is, is key, you know. I mean, I'd love to have a couple of hours to review my contract, but then I also need to collaborate with my clients and, and understand what they need to do and want to have a coffee and meet with them to discuss their next project or whatever it might be. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Do you have mentors yourself that you uh, reach out to? Are you mentoring others? How do you think about that? Uh, uh, the the in in work supports and uh, and and encouraging that uh, that uh, informal on the job learning. Oh, so many! I have so many mentors and um, and I'm mentoring a lot of students and young lawyers at the moment through TLC, of course. Um, but I couldn't do what I do without mentors. I have. Um, formal mentors and I have a lot of informal mentors and it's so important especially when you're doing something new um, like I didn't know anything about running a business and um, but it's been really really good to um, draw from uh, people who've done it before and also people who who are not running businesses but they've got um, other things that might be helpful I will have regular coffees with those people, um, ask questions and um, hopefully be able to help them in some way as well. So uh, I think mentoring is so important, especially in the, in the legal profession because there's so many things to learn and it's nice to have someone in your corner and someone to keep you accountable um, but encourage your goals, maybe send you some resources from time to time and um, just have someone to bounce ideas off. It's so important. Thinking about your uh, favourite mentors, how often do you meet with them, and uh, do you, is it is it quite systematic or more ad hoc? Um, I have some that are systematic. Like I just finished a twelve month um, program, like mentoring program, where we met once a month, and it was. Um, quite formal in the sense of we made sure that we looked at the notes from before and said, okay, how am I tracking um, to my goals? And, and she really kept me accountable. Um, but others are more ad hoc. They're just people that I really look up to um, and will try to have conversations with, coffees with, and, um, and it's more of a, uh, not a friendship, but it's a professional sort of friendship or informal mentoring. And you haven't uh, given up your sport. Uh, how does you know, what, what, how much uh, uh, gym going and dance are you doing these days? And and how does that help you uh, perform better? Yeah, well, I'm not a runner like you, um, but I do love walking, and um, and I love the gym. I've always been um, a gym junkie, and 
Uh, my parents, they would love the gym. And when I was little and wasn't old enough to go to the gym, I'd sit there with my sister and our coloring books and listen to them um, and watch them doing a pump workout. Um, so that's definitely been instilled for me from a young age. But I think um, physical exercise um, is so important. It is the way that I keep myself healthy and keep my um, my mental well-being as well. So... Um, but before I got married, I was um, I was doing a shredding for the wedding thing, which I wouldn't really recommend. It was pretty full on. I was working out about seven days a week and had a personal trainer. Now I'm a little bit more relaxed and I'll do a couple of weight sessions, um, lots of walking with my dog and husband and um, some yoga and stretching and a bit of meditation now as well. I'm trying to be balanced. How do you do the meditation? Do you use uh, one of the uh, apps or... Uh... I use an app and the app assures me that if you think you're doing it wrong, um, it's fine. You, you, you're doing it right if you're like noticing that your mind's wandering. Like, thank goodness, because I feel like I'm really bad at it. Uh, what app do you use? I'm using Insight Timer. What do you like about it? Um, I quite like the sleep ones. So I like the, there's one that's very calming for sleep. And sometimes if I don't have time to meditate during the day, if I put one on before I go to sleep and I fall asleep to it, I find it really quite nice. You're meditating in your dreams. <laughs> yes. Now, I understand you're a serious fan of 1990s music, uh, given that there's sort of these ongoing debates over the, uh, the best musical decades. Uh, uh, what is it that you, uh, you like about the 1990s? How did you get that information? <laughs> uh, you know, I have my sources. <laughs> you're reading my mind. <laughs> Um, I think it's a childhood nostalgia thing. It, it it just, 90s pop music gets me dancing every time. And anyone who knows me well will know that um, they don't go up against me in one of those like song competitions. You know, sometimes if we're with our friends and we'll be putting on different music and the fastest person to, to name the song or artist, um, you know, will win. They do not want to go up against me in 90s pop music because I know every song. <laughs> And uh, you mentioned hip-hop before. I mean, 90s is uh, one of the periods in which hip-hop ta takes off pretty seriously. Is that uh, uh, part of your, uh, your love of the 90s? Absolutely. But the, the later 90s and the early 2000s, for sure. <laughs> in fact, I, um, that's how I met my husband. Uh, was, uh, well, he was studying at Newcastle Uni as well um, in business. Um, but we actually met uh, because we used to have dance-offs in clubs and parties so he's a dancer as well and if we there was a good song on um we would often have this little dance battle in the middle of of the club <laughs> and we did and we did a, a sort of dance battle for our wedding dance as well a hip-hop hip-hop dance a year ago, I would have known nothing about this. Uh, my son has just become a hip-hop dancer and is uh, engaging in dance battles uh, regularly in our lounge rooms. Really? So, uh, so I feel as yeah, yeah. I feel I feel as though I'm I'm up with the art of the dance battle. I was uh, filming one for him on the on the mobile phone in the lounge room the other day and uh, gone in to uh, to watch him take on the other uh, folks in Project Beats. It's um, <laughs> it's something pretty impressive. That kind of that balance between physicality, doing your best, but also having your tongue in your cheek as you, as you do it as well. Yes, and needing to respond to the other person and their moves. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. And and that's sort of, um, you know, the West Side Story kind of, kind of sense of uh, this is this is a, a surrogate for fighting and it's not it, it, it's not really fighting uh, we're not about to uh, not about to pull out the flick, uh, flick knives if uh, the move doesn't go right no absolutely not it's all friendly and fun <laughs> so uh, Jesse what advice would you give to your teenage self I think um, trust yourself in your decisions um, do exactly what what you're doing um, don't worry about what other people think. Uh, but also have more fun. I think I was probably a little too serious um, and nerdy as a as a teenager. I probably could have relaxed a little bit more. But otherwise, don't change anything, I think. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that you can't change the way things are um, and also that you can't ask for what you really want. And I no longer believe either of those things. Um, the first one, I guess, in my in my business, I'm trying to change um, change some things and and offer some things that weren't around when I was in law school, like in house clerkships and training courses that hadn't existed before. And I think before I had done that, I thought, oh, you can't really, you know, change the status quo. And um, I've been really blown away by the support of um, colleagues and the profession and just people generally. Um, with pursuing um, change and that they're willing to accept and support those things, which has been really good. Um, and the second thing that I no longer believe is that you can't ask for what you want. And I no longer believe that because I was so lucky to, to have done a, a leadership course a few years ago through work. And it was actually about female leadership. And we were taught about asking for what you want in your career you start with small asks and then you sort of build your way up to the bigger things. And since doing that course, I've had the courage to ask for things I probably would never have had the courage to do, to ask for before, including to go part-time to start TLC. Um, as again, very lucky to have a supportive boss and, and team that, that said yes. Um, but I guess what I learned is that the worst that anyone can say is no, but I find that most of the time people want to help and they'll say yes. Um, of course, provided what you're asking for is reasonable <laughs> and you have trust and, you know, mutual trust and respect. But um, I'm really happy that those things I no longer believe in. Yes, and there's uh, that interesting work and in looking at the gendered aspect of this as well, where uh, men are much less likely to receive a promotion than women uh, because women will often wait until they've ticked all the boxes for promotion and uh, men will uh, will wing it and uh, and sometimes sometimes manage to get through. Um, so yes, I think increasing increasing the number of uh, women who, uh, who who ask where they think that they might not get get it is uh, is important. Uh, Probably as as well as improving the structures, and so uh, promotions aren't simply based on on people making their own decision as to when they're good enough. Yeah, and I was really um, excited to be part of um, a sort of female lawyer group, and I'm sure that there's plenty of them ar around. But we were encouraged to ask each other for things, and it could be as small as, "Oh, can I ask you for um, you know this." connection to a legal tech firm we want to use through to, um, you know, I'm looking for someone to hire. Can you encourage, can you ask your network if you know of anyone and, and just small asks to really big asks. And so we got used to asking each other for things 
and um, just sort of ripping the Band-Aid off in the sense of just getting used to that. And it's been really, really successful. And I hope that group's still still meeting. But um, I think starting small and, and having a supportive group where we all ask each other for things is um, is a good way to start. Yes, and there's that fascinating uh, psychological work which is uh, uh, often used by uh, misused by con artists, uh, which finds that if you ask something for someone for something really big, uh, and they say no, they'll then be much more likely to agree to your smaller request. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, so, so asking big can be valuable, even if the uh, the first answer is no. Anyway, I'm uh, I'm digressing. Um, when are you most happy? Oh, when I'm dancing. Uh, when I'm dancing and when I'm learning. Yeah, I feel like when I'm dancing, it's just pure joy. There's there's nothing else except the music and the steps. Um, and then learning, I just love learning something new. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, I think it's balance and, and variety. So, you know, I eat really healthily, but I'll always have, I'll have chocolate every day. And I love champagne. <laughs> um, as I said before, I'll do some hard weight workouts, but I'll balance it with yoga and meditation. Um, and uh, I also, I think the other thing that I really love um, that I think is making me even more healthy is that I love my job and I love my business. And I think um, I've got purpose with what I do with TLC, helping law students and young lawyers. And um, I think that contributes immensely to my mental well-being. Um, I also love sleeping. <laughs> I get try and get as much sleep as I can. Um, and I do, um, I actually have severe scoliosis, so I have a very curved spine. Um, it's about 45 degrees um, at an angle of 45 degrees in my lower back, so it's pretty bad. But um, I like to do lots of stretching and I lie on my Shakti mat every night, which is an acupressure mat. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. I have, yes. They're really good. They relieve a lot of the pain associated with um, like my muscles being pushed up on one side due to my back. So I really like after a hard day's work, just lying on the Shakti mat for half an hour, watching like a, um, a TV show or something like that and just letting those little acupressure needles get into the to the really um, tight bits of my back. We, uh, we spoke a little bit before about uh, legal TV. What, uh, what TV show do you think does the best job of depicting lawyers? Oh, uh, I don't think any of them do a great job. <laughs> I do like, I like suits, um, even though I, they're completely unethical all the time and I don't think it truly reflects what's going on. Um, but I, that's probably the only one I watch. I, I think... I'm a little bit too young for Boston Legal and the other ones. Um, I never watched those. So, Well, the thing that always struck me about these shows, which I don't think any of them will ever solve, is that lawyers seem to work on one case at a time in TV, uh, whereas you, uh, you talk to a, a real lawyer and, and they've got you know, half a dozen or a dozen cases on the go at any one time. Absolutely. That's exactly right. <laughs> Wouldn't make for much of a storyline, but uh, certainly uh, the legal profession might be more satisfied about the realism if they took that approach. <laughs> Jesse, do you have any uh, guilty pleasures? 90s pop music. <laughs> like. I'm not so guilty about it. Uh, sometimes embarrassed, but then I just get over it and love it. <laughs> Favourite 90s band? Backstreet Boys. What do you love about the Backstreet Boys? Oh, just the great harmonies you can sing, excellent songs, excellent lyrics. They were just, I used to have the CD-ROM of their first album 
and uh, just I fell in love with them ever, ever since. I've been meaning to go to Vegas and see them uh, live. I miss them when they come to Australia. I'm not sure when they're coming, but I miss the tickets, so I'm pretty devastated. <laughs> So in terms of influence, I would have thought you'd, you'd say something like uh, Nirvana or Oasis in terms of subsequent, subsequent bands who are influenced by them. They seem to, Backstreet Boys seem to be successful, but you don't see that, um, uh, the, the, the rippling out of the, uh, the influence onto a whole lot of other bands in the way you do, say, with Nirvana, right? Yeah, that's true. But as I said, I, it's a guilty pleasure, Andrew. So it's you know, it's all about. <laughs> Don't overthink it. <laughs> there's no, yeah, yeah. There's no science behind it. I just love it. <laughs> Finally, Jesse, which um, person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, for for person, of course, I have a few because I don't want to leave any anyone out. I've got a beautiful group of friends and a lovely family that inspire me all the time. Um, I think my parents instilled. Um, the value of hard work, but also of health and balance. My dad's always done yoga and meditation. Like before it was cool. He, he did that in the nineties. Um, and as I said before, my parents always went to the gym and, um, but I think that they encouraged me to persevere and to work hard and to do whatever I wanted to do. They encouraged me and supported me. Um, my husband, Keith, um, he runs his own social media marketing agency and he's very inspiring for me in business and in life generally with his love of fun and of people. And he really supported me to follow my business dreams and I've learned a lot from him. Um, and finally, my my late granny, um, she passed away only a few weeks ago. Um, she she was a teacher, and um, but she was also a real trailblazer in her day. And she was always searching to, to change things for the better. Um, I'm reading her memoirs at the moment and it's, um, it's pretty inspiring and um, when I hear stories about her, I, I feel, I hope that I'm doing her proud and um, following in, in her footsteps. She sounds an impressive woman. It's, uh, it's great to be, to be inspired by our, uh, our ancestors. Yeah. Jessie Portis, lawyer and law entrepreneur, thank you for joining us on the Good Life podcast today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Libby Lyons, Kate McClymont and Michael Kirby. We appreciate getting